Welcome to Management Lab. That might sound surprising to some of you who have listened to us already. We are rebranding from our previous title of What Do You Make of This? Just experimenting with some things we're early on. We'll see where it goes. At any rate, this is Sean Hansen from Saunders College of Business at Rochester Institute of Technology in beautiful Rochester, New York. And I'm Ori Gall from the University of Sydney in Sydney, Australia. How are you doing, Sean? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. There's something I want to share with you. Go for it. I had an experience last week, late last oh, week on goodness. Friday. Do I need to steal myself for this revelation? No, no, no. You're going to be okay, I think. <clears throat> um, so we're going to be talking about AI today. That's the, the that's going to be the talk, topic of the conversation. And Sam Again, Oper- that's two weeks in a row. Fun times. Sort of, yes. But yeah. different aspects of the phenomenon. And right. Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, was in Melbourne last week. He came, you know, he he's gone through this global tour where he um yeah. went to a bunch of different countries and talked up his company and explained to everybody how wonderful the technology is. And the last stop on his tour was in Melbourne. Um, so he we had this big event, and as it happens, my wife was the person who got to interview him, and it was an interesting experience in more than one way. You're making a face. Why are you making a face? It's awesome. That's so cool. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, really yeah. exciting. It was very exciting, um, especially because half an hour before she had to go up on stage, we got, we got a call from the school to say that our daughter was sick. Um, oh, so we had, <laughs> we had to juggle, uh, juggle a few balls um, um, at the same time. But at any rate, the conversation was interesting, interesting not, not because he said something that was rev- revolutionarily new relative to what he had said before, but I guess it occurred to me more clearly than before that he's really on a on a sales trip. I think that's one of the yeah. primary reasons he's gone on on that trip. And he, so there are a few things that he said that made me think um, that way. So one of the question, one of the one of the questions that he got asked was, you know, you've been on this five or six week tour. You've been asked hundreds of different different questions, probably. What question do you wish you had been asked that you haven't been asked and nora asked this one yeah yeah that's pretty good and the answer he gave was and i'm obviously paraphrasing that he feels there was too much emphasis on the negative and not enough emphasis on the positive and all the amazing consequences that the technology might have interesting um so I guess in retrospect, it's not surprising that he would give such an answer, but given all the conversations around how forthcoming he's been in in relation to regulation and and acknowledging the risks of of generative AI, I I thought that was a bit interesting. Although he did say- What would you say, just in eyeballing the open coverage, I don't want to take away from the discussion, but uh, eyeballing general sort of popular press, tech press coverage- what percentage would you say has been negatively framed as opposed to positively framed? That's a good question. I, I, I'm really not sure. I think this is a case where you have these echo 
chambers and i think i'm pretty deeply steeped in one right. of them that that probably emphasizes the the more critical way of, of looking at this technology but i'm sure there's been lots and lots of of positive coverage i mean if you go on linkedin and you know there's so many posts of you know here are the 10 prompts that are going to increase your productivity by 50 percent and increase your revenue by 500 percent mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um so i really think it depends where you look what what's yeah. your what's your sense my estimation would be four to one, but that could, as you know, that could be a reflection of the the types of circles that I uh, inhabit. Uh, but I would say four to one negative to positive. Really? Um, where a large percentage has emphasized the negative, the fears about generative AI in particular. And what we're going to be talking about today goes beyond just generative AI. Uh, but open AI's real mark has been in the generative space. Uh, they, in addition to ChatGPT, as I recall, OpenAI is the parent behind Dolly, the Dolly image generator. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And they have another application that generates um, music, I believe. I forget what it's called, but I I, I think um, it's, it's just the one that did a uh, Drake and weekend mashup or something generated a brand new Drake weekend mashup. I'm not sure. Um, but I know he Super was asked popular. about it uh, in, uh, in relation to copyrights violations, and he was his response was um, that it wasn't meant to be a, a big deal. That application they, they didn't really emphasize it. Anyway, that was his his response, which I I thought was um, was interesting. He did yeah, kind of definitely. offhandedly mention. Um, I think actually I think he was asked about it, or maybe he was asked about the risks in general, and 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 he he mentioned one one risk that people might use um, Chat GPT to create new super dangerous pathogens, <laughs> and um, that he was concerned about that. Well, it, uh, I don't want to send us off on a tangent, but I don't know if you've seen some of the recent reporting that suggests that the. Uh, COVID-19 was indeed the product of a uh, biological warfare initiative. Yeah, well, that's... well. That's, this is not conspiracy theory. There's <laughs> real reporting, but we could cut this all out if you want. <laughs> no, no, but let's just leave it there because if we do get yeah. into this, we can easily spend an hour just talking about that and going back and forth. Fair enough. So tonight, we're or today for you... Um, we're, we're not talking about uh, generative AI in particular, but we are looking at the the practical workplace implications of artificial intelligence. And we wanted to sort of delve into, all right, all this discussion about artificial intelligence and machine learning tools, but we don't necessarily have a great sense of what the practical implications to date are uh, in the workplace. Yeah, and it feels like there's been a renewed interest in in those questions in the wake of the release of tools like ChatGPT and Bard, all those different types of of what we call generative AI systems, um, whose primary capability is to, as the name suggests, to generate new content, be it text or images or video, because it is kind of important to keep this or to put this in a broader perspective, which is that AI technologies of different types have been with us for decades, right? The AI in itself is not a new phenomenon. It's just we've seen significant advancements in um, computing capability and and data analysis capability and um, storage capability that have enabled all these different um, advancements that we've seen in the last um, few years. And it's reached a point where these technologies have become so good that 
people are actually able to see in a pretty intuitive way that they have very applicable um, uses in the workplace. Yeah. Do you think, by the way, since we've already talked about this topic to some degree, do you think we need to define some terms at all? And in particular, what I'm thinking here is when we talk about artificial intelligence, as you noted, it has existed in various forms, neural networks being one of the earliest, but in various forms over many generations. But in particular, the machine learning and deep learning tools have really seen a huge explosion in the last 10, right? And I think that's what's driving a lot of uh, the innovation that we're seeing. And so I, I don't know. What do you think? Should we quickly? Yeah. Do you want to quickly define machine? So learning? yeah, this is this is back of the envelope. I, <laughs> I don't have a good definition in front of me, but I think the differentiating elements of machine learning and then deep learning basically builds off of machine learning. But the defining elements of machine learning are algorithmic tools, again, building software and rule sets that can improve their own performance over time on whatever tasks or objectives are set before it. So the key differential, that's, that's the learning element of the machine learning piece is that the algorithm can continue to get better by pulling in variables and deciding how variables and metrics should be combined to improve their performance in accuracy, predictive or probabilistic accuracy. And another key element in machine learning systems is that um, they require large quantities of data in order to improve their performance over time, right? So we have to train those algorithms on large quantities of data that represent whatever the domain of interest might be. So it might be images if we're um, looking to develop a system that that um, classifies images into different types, or it might be performance of employees and organizations if that's the type of algorithm we want to develop. For instance, if we want to have a, some sort of a hiring algorithm to rank different applicants based on their capabilities and stuff like that. So large quantities of data are, data are um, an essential piece of these machine learning algorithms. And like you said before, um, neural networks and, and deep learning, which is kind of, a, I guess, a, an advanced version of neural networks, are one instantiation, one type of, of machine, learning, machine learning algorithms. It's a specific architecture of machine learning algorithms um, that, that's kind of at the core of all this generative AI um, I don't want to say, I don't know if I want to use the word revolution, but, um, you know, rise of, of generative AI systems. Yeah, I think it's pretty revolutionary. I think what we're seeing is pretty, pretty revolutionary. So we'll go into some of what the research says, but I do think before we talk about sort of these early indications, it's important for us to acknowledge that there's a real indeterminacy right now of the phenomenon, meaning the extant literature on the practical implications of these tools is quite limited. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of indication that it's going that the impacts are going to be enormous, and lots of predictions that they're going to be enormous, including um, this is not something we studied, but uh, Suskin there was uh, Suskin and Suskin wrote a book a couple years ago that basically said we're looking at the end of professions, right? Like professions will cease to exist altogether in the near term. So in terms of the the impact that that various people are predicting, it's it's almost unlimited. But it's very indeterminate exactly where this is going to go right now. So I think it's key that even as we review some of this research, there's not going to be a lot of concrete answers. There's not a lot of do this, not that kind of solutions to be had. Yeah, uh, which is not entirely surprising given how recent advancements have been in this in this space. But yeah, what, what we see are initial indications of what, what might be coming. By the way, what you just said, the fact that it's still new, 
remind me of something else that Sam Alton said on on it was on Friday last week, uh, which made me think that he was on a on a sales tour. When asked how do you think organizations should use tools like ChatGPT and other generative AI systems to increase innovation within the organization within the company, his his response, and again I'm I'm paraphrasing, was use it for everything immediately. Hmm. Which, which interesting. Which basically contradicts pretty much everything that we know about implementation of systems in the organizations. But yeah. his response was yeah. was that use it for everything as soon as you can. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's the leader leader of an organization. He is necessarily on a promotional tour, if not a full sales tour. Yeah. Sure, but it kind of I I I agree. But when you think about the kind of people he's met with, like heads of state. Yeah. Yeah. Diplomats. Um, so it's uh, he's obviously more than just a tech guy at this stage, right? It's 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 gone beyond that. But anyway, let's let's circle. Do back. you have an open AI subscription? Do you do the twenty dollars a month? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you're not alone. I, I know that as a department chair, a lot of my faculty or some of my faculty have come forward and said, you know, could I please get the subscription? And I'm inclined to to support them in that regard. But it it makes me realize that you we could very soon have an entire generation or an entire cohort of people in sort of i don't know in intelligentsia writ large so academic profession or academic domains professional domains things like that seeking to get the subscription 20 dollars a month if we call that what 10 percent of the world's population 20 dollars a month that's a big revenue source right so sure he's selling Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Okay, let's circle back to the topic at hand. So yeah. we were just saying that the research on the topic is still in its infancy because it's a pretty recent phenomenon. But we have, in preparation for the day, we have found a few studies that empirically demonstrate some of the impacts of of some of these tools in a workplace context. Yeah, and there were two in particular that I would like us to sort of touch on. Because I thought they they really um, reinforced one another really strongly and interesting. These were both working papers. Uh, so there was a a, a paper by Brynjolfsson, Eric Brynjolfsson, uh, Lee and Raymond. So Brynjolfsson, Lee and Raymond. This is a, a National Bureau of Economic Research working paper called Generative AI at Work. And then I'm just going to give both titles. The other one was Noi and Zhang. And this is currently an SSRN working paper called Experimental Evidence on the Productivity Effects of Generative Artificial Intelligence. And, and we can talk about some of the, the, the disentangle the two. But what they found in both is in case studies of actual applications of these technologies, they see real significant productivity increases from the use of these tools uh, in in the one case, it was ChatGPT. The other case, was it actually Chat? No, it was a proprietary uh, generative AI software for customer service support. But in both cases, they said, you know, the people using the tools, you see real productivity enhancements, uh, both in terms of the amount of time it takes them to do their work, the successful outcome rate, customer satisfaction, all of these things go up. Uh, well, time goes down, but the rest goes up. And interestingly, the benefits accrue to the lowest skilled workers. Hmm. Well, there, there were uh, several different 
findings that came out of the brain oh sorry the name is a mouthful brain Olfson study at all yeah so the setting of that study was uh, a call center right mm-hmm. and so they looked at how the um use of this um tool improved or impacted people's work in this in this context yeah and, and this was the software was prompting people with responses to consumers, different scripts for responses to consumers, yes. ways, solutions to propose to consumers, things of that nature. Exactly. So it was given advice in real time as to how to manage the conversation with actual suggestions of with suggestions of actual text to say back to the customers. Um, and what they found was um, a 13.8% increase in the number of chats that were successfully resolved, as well as a decline in the time that it took those individuals to resolve those those chats so improvement both yep. in time and in i guess a quality would be kind of a proxy um construct to describe this like you said they also found a disproportional increase in the performance of the less skilled individuals who work there so it kind of narrowed the gap between the less skilled and the more skilled individuals uh, with the introduction of this technology which i think is something that we we need to talk uh, talk about the significance of this yeah i think it's really intriguing and yeah and and the, they also say that the high skill workers may have less to gain um because ai uh, recommendations capture tacit knowledge arguably right that's what they say tacit knowledge and kind of disseminate this tacit knowledge to people who didn't have it before thereby allowing them right. to catch up with the more skilled individual uh, workers and then we could just quickly summarize the the other study and, and talk about how these things do relate. Uh, the other study took college-educated professionals and asked them to write an essay, like gave them an essay writing exercise. And for half of the group, they gave them access to ChatGPT. They have, had them sign up with ChatGPT and to use that to support their essay writing. And the other half was the control group. So they were, they were not to use ChatGPT. And here again, you saw a significant increase, you know, fairly dramatic increase in the sort of time, uh, decrease in the time it took to write the essays, but corresponding increase in quality of essays. But uh, as with the the previous study that we noted, the benefits really accrued to the lower skill, the people who had lower scores on quality in the pre, there was a pretest condition where they were to write something initially before using any tool. And those that had the lowest scores saw the greatest benefit from the use of the tool. So in both these cases, we have real substantive increases in effectiveness, uh, efficiency, if we measure that in time. Uh, So both of those and the greatest benefit accruing to the lower skilled individuals. Do you think that's a good thing that that the gap um, narrows? So I don't know. I'm conflicted on this. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think there is certainly a good element to it. because there's a, there's a degree to which this is, if you recall, you might recall Uri as an information systems person like myself, uh, back in the 1990s and 2000s, there was a lot of talk about what was what were called expert systems. Mm-hmm. So what they tried to do was to sort of build expertise, human expertise into, you know, decision support systems, software that would help guide people through a process. And it was a kind of a bust. It never really worked as anticipated. And what occurs to me is now we have seen it come to fruition. This is this is effectively expert systems coming to pass, right? Where the the tools are providing the expertise. Exactly. So the rationale for those expert systems was that 
anybody who's not an expert could use these systems to gain access to expert knowledge that's embedded in them. And right. I think I think you're I didn't think about this that way, but I think you're right. I think with the introduction of these tools that embody so much information because they've been trained on the entire internet pretty much and they are able to present the information in a very intuitive human-like format which wasn't really the case before not in such a sophisticated way people really do it seems like gain access can are really able to gain access to this expert information or expert skills which they didn't have before and embed them successfully into their own work to a degree, because one one other thing that that study by um, Noi and Zhang found, that's the the writing the essay writing task that were, that people were given, that most people use the tool as a replacement for their own writing, right? So I think the yeah, number was yeah. 68 percent of the treatment group. The this is the group that was given access to ChatGPT. So sixty eight percent of them um, reported not editing. Chat GPT's output after it was given to them, right? Which I guess, <laughs> you know, I think it's a pretty significant caveat in terms of making any any conclusive statements about how this technology can increase or help people upskill. So it definitely increases their productivity and heightens the quality of their work. But is it really their work? Right. I, I think that when I say I'm conflicted on this, part of it is the fear that this leads to a downskilling where no one acquires the skill if they don't need to, right? Where basically in any professional domain, people acquire skills because they think it'll make them better in, in a competitive landscape or something like that. But if people have tools at their fingertips that basically can make them uh, just as good as the next person, then will they acquire that skill, right? If, if I could suddenly shoot as well as Steph Curry, I'm not going to go spend hours. At, don't smirk like that. Don't even do it. <laughs> I just remember. <laughs> but our, if I could, I remember our days, <laughs> our days playing basketball together when we were PhD students, and even twenty years ago. Let me tell you, my friend, you were no Steph Curry. You weren't. You weren't even That's a Larry right. Bird. So <laughs> it's true. I am not a shooter. I am not a shooter uh, or I, a jumper. I use I use my. Well, look, I I'm a big guy though, so I use I can use my size to own the block. That's about it. Yeah, you were like but, uh, fair enough. Uh, if I may say so, uh, like a downgraded version of of Kevin McHale. I am gonna jump through this. Actually, <laughs> I'll take that. I'll I'll take McHale for sure. I mean, yeah. didn't go with Bill Lambeer. Um, anyway. <laughs> oh um, yeah, actually, that's a better one. <laughs> but the point is, if I could, if I could make myself as good a shooter as Steph Curry, then I'm not gonna spend hours in the gym, right? And so I, I, there's a fear that I have that these tools, if it can make anyone. I mean, there, there's an egalitarian vision that it creates where it gives everyone at their fingertips the ability to sort of compete in a given landscape. There's just something about it that worries me that it's going to undermine the drive to try to excel in lots of different uh, frontiers. Oh, so you're concerned it might decrease individual motivation to to learn new skills or to apply new skills? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So I, I guess an interesting question is, and if we think back about previous waves of of technological breakthroughs i think it's almost always been the case that with any new technological innovation that was uh, revolutionary in some sense across multiple domains and societies you know if you think about the technological revolution in the 1800s in in europe 
it's always been the case. I feel Are like you re- referring to what we call the industrial revolution. Industrial revolution which, yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah. It's always been the case that that there were concerns around what are people going to do with 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 these new technologies because what the skills that they had that used to be valuable in the mm-hmm. market are now becoming obsolete very quickly <clears throat> and so but the counter argument has always been that yes those old skills are not going to be useful anymore but it gives people a change it frees up people's time right so they can learn new skills more advanced skills so rather than be engaged you know for 16 hours a day in repetitive manual work they're going to be able to learn new skills and apply i don't know more critical thinking and reflection and and um high level thinking in the workplace to increase their productivity and be more useful the question right, is when right. you have a tool like these generative ai systems which do those skills so well right they're able to at least emulate thinking and and synthesis and and writing in a at a very high level what is the next step what is the next you know level of, of what's the unique what, what's unique to us yeah and, and i think it's a i think it's a good question i think it's a good question i don't um i think the historical context that you set up is actually really valuable and one of the other papers that we looked at highlighted this but this is something that whenever i talk about the the sort of growth of ai i like to go back to the historical context because the term a term we still use today luddite comes from the followers of a guy named samuel ludd back during the industrial revolution who went around smashing mechanical looms because they were seamstresses or you know uh weavers sorry weavers and so they went around smashing mechanical looms because their thinking was uh it's taking our jobs away and i think we see the same i mean one of the biggest points of discussion around this whole technology is this idea of technological unemployment that you're going to see technology-based displacement from jobs and i do think it's a i think it's a realistic concern i think there are reasons for it but if we do take the historical context you're right that every previous wave of technological innovation actually created many more jobs and classes of jobs than it destroyed Mm -hmm. the difference and we're maybe getting a little afield from uh, from the research itself, is the pace at which that's happening. Meaning that is certainly true for every previous wave of technological innovation, but it's happening so fast now that the ability of individual human beings to reskill from one professional orientation to another becomes a very open question. Yeah, I agree. Almost no one talked about generative AI before the end of last year. And we're in the middle of 2023 and everybody is talking about it. And with all the excitement and the dread that that's that's involved in these conversations. So I, I think this, you know, more cynical individuals than me would say we've always talked about speed and people have always talked about being in the midst of a revolutionary era because we like to think that we live in special times because that makes us special but maybe there's something that's actually different this time around at least in terms of the pace and we're not even getting into this whole conversation around whether ai is such a a unique oops with the recent investment advancements in ai such a unique technology that it might actually bring about the demise of the human race right that's a different conversation in terms of how yeah, we'll leave that one aside how unique the the times really are um we, we'll leave it aside but it's we can't ignore it at the same time right no, because it, it is an indication of of 
um, just how special for good and for bad this, these technologies are. It's not but, like but the invention. Thinks... Let me just finish the the, the point. It's sure. not like the invention of um, you know uh, an automated machine to um, to produce more cars per hour. It's it's a different type of technology that, like you said before, has the capacity to self improve, which is one of the key reasons why people are so concerned about what what might happen. So my gut feeling is I agree with you, but I also have this sense that everyone in each of those previous waves of innovation felt exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. They felt that the wave they were living through was unique vis-a-vis -vis the ones they had seen before. Um, I saw in one of the papers that we looked at, this was, we don't have to go to this one right now, but this was uh, by uh, Jarahi mm -hmm. uh, from Business Horizons. Uh, but he included a quote in that paper that was from John Maynard Keynes in the 1930s. I just want to throw it out here now. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, of course, a key economic thinker and one of the real drivers behind what in the United States be wound up becoming um, the, the New Deal uh, economic plans. Uh, but this from a 1930 article, Economic Possibilities of Our Grandchildren, in which he described them as described technological unemployment as a new disease. So Keynes seemed to think he was on the brink of unprecedented, unprecedented technological displacement back closing in on 100 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, maybe history rhymes with itself. Yeah. And and we are kind of back in the loop in a similar place where we were before more than just once. So I, I think one of the key insights that seems to be coming out of the literature that is, I think, a little more optimistic, at least leads me toward a more optimistic uh, line of thinking, is uh, strong indications that the greatest benefits don't come from a replacement of human with computer but come from what might be called oh, there goes my microphone but uh, come from <laughs> come from what might be called human computer or i guess has been called human computer collaboration so where we have uh work tasks in which you have humans using computers right uh to do and using artificial intelligence to do various to pursue various tasks and across a number of studies here we see pretty good evidence that the humans in collaboration with the computers generate better outcomes than either the humans or the algorithms in by themselves in isolation. Yeah, so we saw specifically one study by Fugener et al. from Information Fugener. Systems Research. Yep. That you've got an umlaut over it. Fugener. Oh, I, I apologize. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you're not saying it right either, so don't pitch I'm me. sure I'm not. <laughs> Um, cognitive challenges in in human artificial intelligence, and they found uh, so that the, they they ran an online experiment, and the, the task that they gave people was or AI uh, was to classify images into different types of images, and they mm -hmm. they measured the accuracy of of their classification, and they looked at different conditions. One was they let the AI work alone. They let the human work alone. And then they looked at what happens when the human delegates work to the AI and what they call inversion, which is the opposite of that, when AI delegates work to the human. And they compared the levels of accuracy across these different four conditions. And 
Guess what they found? Can you guess, Sean? Uh, well, I, I I'm cheating because I know the research. But right. yeah, what they found was that again the humans in collaboration with the computers did the best, but specifically under the condition in which the AI delegated the tasks or the classification task and the humans exercised the classification task. And, but this is very interesting to me because but, it, it but, suggests... But, but, uh, go so ahead. You just to put things in the right order. So that was the most accurate condition when the AI delegated mm -hmm. to the human and that was followed by the AI working alone. And then the third most accurate condition was when the human delegated to the AI and the least accurate condition was the human acting alone. Yeah, the human by themselves was the worst performance. Yeah. Um, but what's intriguing to me here is, number one, the insight that the collaborative element, the interaction between the human and the, the algorithm is can make a difference. Um, but also that it starts to get give us a sense of, well, which party should do which, right? Like if we're starting to talk from, which we'll get to in a little bit about managerial implications, I think it's helpful to say, well, what types of things should we have the technology do? And what types of things should we reserve to the human beings? And simply thinking, oh, well, as long as they're working with the technology, you know, humans do some and computers do some, it'll be fine, is, is not a great path forward. Like we want to think about the types of tasks that we that we have the computing do as opposed to those that, that we as human beings think we should reserve to ourselves. Yeah. And one way of thinking about this um, comes from a different paper that we looked at by Jarahi um, 2018, which I think he touched on briefly before. Right. And where he talks about, so he talks about three different types of decision-making that, that managers typically make in organizations. Um, of three different elements that are involved in those decisions. Aspects of organizational life, essentially, right? Yeah, but specific to decision-making. So mm -hmm. one type or condition of decision-making has to do with uncertainty, which is where we make decisions under uncertain conditions where we don't have all the information that we want to make a kind of to borrow from Simon Simon's work, Herbert Simon. We don't have all the information we need to make to make a fully rational decision. So we kind of satisfy us in a way, right? So that's uncertainty. We, we have missing information. A second condition is complex. just quick, quick definition. Satisfice is not the same as satisfy. Satisfice means under a situation where we have limited information, we do as best as we can, essentially, yeah. in a decision domain. Yeah. The second um, condition is complexity, where we have too much information so that we kind of experience information overload and we don't have the capacity, the cognitive capacity to, to fully process all this information. And the third condition or type of um, decision-making environment that we deal with as managers and organizations is what he calls equivocality, um, which involves dealing with divergent interpretations of a given decision-making situation, right? And, and yeah, he, where there's high ambiguity. Yeah. And he talks about political kind of negotiation type of decisions that, or, or situations that managers have to deal with an organization where we have different groups with different interests and different ways of, of framing a given situation. And, mm -hmm. and, and managers have to navigate these um, equivocal um, situations to make a, an, a decision there. 
And in each of these conditions, he talks about how AI can be used by managers to um, help them make good decisions. So in the condition of uncertainty, which just to remind everybody involves not having enough information, um, he talks about how AI can be used to find patterns in existing data to generate new ideas, even in the, in the data that we do have. And as we know, AI um, is, is uh, algorithms are very effective at scanning large amounts of data very quickly and finding patterns, correlations in the data in, in ways that humans might have not thought about. Yeah. So idea, just to interject quickly, idea generation, anomaly detection, like figuring out if there's something anomalous in the data set or market scanning, like scanning the market to see if there are events occurring. This could relate, of course, to anomaly detection, but to determine if there are events to which human actors need to respond, something like that yeah. under conditions of uncertainty. And the role of the human in this situation would be... Um, to provide what humans have a particular strength in, which is the intuitive side of, of decision-making, which is not based on clear decision rules, right? It's based on prior experiences that we've had dealing with similar situations time and time again over years um, to the point that when we experience a similar situation in the future, it's already kind of baked into us what needs to be done, not because we mm -hmm. think about this, about this explicitly and and add up all the different elements in the current decision decision situation. It's just because that we, by taking a snapshot of the situation, we we figure out that yes, we've seen this before. It's similar to, to what we've done in that previous situation, and that's kind of what we need to do right now. Um, so there's no deliberate, you know, rule following um, thought process there that that precedes the decision. It's just something that we that feels right to us. I was a little dissatisfied with this, by the way. With my explanation? Meaning, uh, no, 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 not your explanation, that argument. Mm -hmm. um, I like the idea of leaving the decision to the human because we're often better in novel situations. One of the things we know about the algorithms if, is if we have real novelty, they often don't adapt well because they are entirely driven by past content, right? And so if we have something really fundamentally different, then it, a human might be better equipped to generate a solution. So I like that element. What I didn't love is the resorting to the concept of intuition. Hmm. It just seems too loose to me, right? Like um, where it's sort of like a bailout for the humans. Well, the computer doesn't have intuition. Well, okay. How are we defining intuition? Well, well, he, well I don't disagree, but he gave examples that might help everybody make sense of this. So he talked about investment decisions and investment, obviously, involves a lot of future thinking and future thinking you know we don't know much about the future it's just an extrapolation from the past that might help us figure out what's going to happen in the future but we don't know because it hasn't happened yet and so there's lots of missing information and and the best way to address these sort of situations as a human being according to the paper is by using intuition and so mm -hmm. when we make investment decisions even strategic ones and i think he gave um he, he talked about um jobs Steve Jobs there, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how whenever he used to make these one of these big strategic decisions, it was intuitive. It just felt right. He had a, a gut feel that this is the right decision to make, and he wasn't able to fully explain why that decision was the best one to make. So I'm not critiquing the researcher, but I, I still I find that to be a, a weak argument. 
because you can always pick an example of someone who made several good decisions. There are also great examples that get lost to history of people who made the dumbass decision, right? Who who trusted their intuition and said, "No, I'm gonna I'm gonna invest in the penny farthing bicycle design or some <laughs> shit like that." I don't know, you know, like. There's it, it, intuition to me just is one that is too loose conceptually, too loose a concept. And you can come up with examples to support it, but uh, anecdote is not data. But just to try and seal in the argument that I thought it, that I thought he was trying to make, it's not just human intuition, right? It's the collaboration between human intuition and AI scanning data for patterns. So it right, might right. be okay, that. So when, Human decision making informed by yeah. The, so it might be that the, the scanning collection. will highlight certain correlations or point at a, a new direction that we might be we we might want to go in in terms of I don't know this market might be particularly lucrative in the coming year for whatever reason, or right. we might want to focus on this segment of customers because these are the numbers from the last five years and that's what they're pointing at. So given this information, this particular framing of the of the situation, then the intuition kicks in. I, I think that's what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so these do, are... Do you want to quickly hit the complexity one and the uh, equivocality ones? Yeah, so complexity is where we have too much information. And again, we can use AI to simplify the situation for us by finding patterns in the data. Um, because again, AI is really good at, at doing this. It's scanning huge amounts of data that humans have no chance of of going through in a lifetime. Sometimes, very quickly to find patterns, and humans, not entirely dissimilarly from what we said before, um, can make the final call. Right. So, for instance, uh, we could use AI to scan Twitter to find potentially harmful content that we might want to remove. Maybe not under. Um, Musk, maybe before, but whatever. Um, and then it would be a human call whether or not this content is actually harmful in the specific context in which it was uttered, and then make the call whether or not to uh, to remove the content. So the, that's how these two capabilities can complement each other. And finally, equivocality. Um, and again, to remind everybody, these are those politically charged situations where we have multiple interpretations of um, a given event or thing. And here he gives an example of how AI might be used to um, conduct different types of sentiment analyses to gauge reactions or potential reactions to managerial decisions, right? So we would be better informed about how to conduct ourselves as managers and what types of decisions we might want to make. And the role of the human in this situation would be, which is kind of a conventional or traditional way of thinking about what managers or at least good managers um, should be doing, which is to engage in persuasion and negotiation to kind of construct a vision um, for the organization and, and rally support for that vision. And consensus building, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this one uh, really reminded me of our discussion last time about the ethical reasoning tools. And one of the papers we looked at said, well, the machine goes back and forth on the trolley problem, right? It, it gives inconsistent advice. And this is definitely one of those where I see a real uniqueness for human beings where, okay, when we're dealing with ambiguous or equivocal conditions, that's when human beings can come in and say, okay, give me all the perspectives. And, and I think we talked about this last time. Give me all the perspectives so I can make a judicious decision. 
and then then I'll choose the path and I'll give my reasoning for it. Yeah, another thing that struck me that that wasn't mentioned in the paper, specifically in those equivocal politically charged situations, is the human touch, because oftentimes negotiations involve catering not just to the rational or factual argument, but also it's a very emotive, or it can be a very emotive situation where people's identities and and um, you know, psychologically, they're psychologically driven, not just economically driven. Let's put it that way. And I think mm -hmm. addressing those elements of the situation, still, I would argue, are primarily at the are, are the responsibility of the human manager and not the AI. So that's that's something else. I think um, we're still uniquely, st still, I'm not sure how for how much longer, but we uniquely we yeah. <laughs> uniquely positioned to handle adequately. We hold on to it as long as we can, right? Yes, I think um, so. <laughs> there's one last study I would like to touch on before we talk to before we turn to sort of our takeaways. Um, and this was, uh, and I don't know that you read it, and so I'll try to summarize it and just maybe get your reaction on the fly. Uh, but this was by uh, Rance Botham et al. Um, this was, I believe, published in uh, MIT Sloan Management Review, but it was a product of a, a study of. Of, of a research team and a group from Boston Consulting Group, or a team from Boston Consulting Group. The title of the paper is Expanding AI's Impact with Organizational Learning. And the core, the, a couple key insights were, this was a couple years, actually, let me check the date really quick. 2020, so two years ago. So uh, AI was still pretty, pretty widespread at the time. Um, and their insight is that a lot of organizations are focusing on the use of AI. Uh, huge majorities are saying this is a top priority. But of those that that implement it in various ways, a small minority have achieved any benefits from it. Though we, we saw the earlier studies where maybe this is shifting. But at least a couple of years ago, uh, something like 10% of companies achieve some significant financial benefit from AI adoption. And if they, uh, if the companies also involved, um, I think it was some labor development, you know, skill training and things like that, still only increased the benefits to like one in five, one in five firms. So you have a lot of companies spending a lot of time and energy trying to use AI to be more effective, and a small percentage of them are achieving real, substantive, concrete benefits from it. So that's one key insight, which is kind of interesting. The takeaway that the study has is essentially that in order to, to really benefit from AI adoption, organizations have to invest in organizational learning around the use of AI. So they have to facilitate uh, you know, systemic and continuous learning experiences between the humans and the machine and the technology. They have to develop multiple ways for humans to interact with the technology. So different modes of interaction, and they have to focus on sort of continuous learning. I think the phrase they used was the, the they change to learn and they learn to change, right? Mm -hmm. And it's only in those conditions where organizations are sort of investing in the innovation around the technology that, that they're achieving any substantive gains. Yeah. So... Based on that summary, do you have any any uh, quick reactions to it? I think the finding or the, the argument makes sense to me. And it's very consistent with decades of research in information systems and, and management 
which clearly indicate across dozens of studies, if not more, many of them empirical um, empirical studies that looked at the implementation of different types of technologies into organizations and what actually drives productivity increases in those organizations, it's not just enough to put the technology in, right? Mm -hmm. You have to actually get people to use the technology in the way that it was intended to be used. Um, and, and so just- I don't even know, just a quick interjection. Intended to be used is an open question because I think a lot of the learning that organizations have to go through is what's the way that it that it will work effectively. It might be totally different than what it, how it was intended to be used by designers or something like that. So I think, I think this is an organic and emergent. There's it also an depends on the emergent piece here. It also depends on the technology, right? Because if we're talking about, I don't know, just to go back to the '80s or '90s, like an ERP system that has very specific uses and and the way people are meant to utilize it is pretty heavily scripted. There's only so much that you can deviate from, you know, how it was meant to be used by by the designers. But if you're talking about something like ChatGPT, which is a much more generalized, open digital technology that can be used for, I don't know, thousands of different in in thousands of different scenarios to achieve thousands of, thousands of different objectives, then there you're going to have much more flexibility. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. I think one of the things we've seen from this other research is that it's good at some stuff and not as good at other stuff. Right, like the, it's an open question whether or not it's it's good in all applications. But in, in in either scenario, the point that they're making in the paper makes sense to me. In that you need to have complementary capabilities within the organization to actually leverage the capability of 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 the technology, sure. and and we know this from previous research. So it's not just about plugging this in, giving people access to it and voila, things are going to, productivity is going to jump by 50%. That's not going to be the case in most situations. And and this is where I want to kind of rethink more critically a bit about the two studies we mentioned before, the, the two experiments that we talked about. There, people didn't really have a choice whether or not to use the technology. It was part of the experiment. They had to use it, right? Mm -hmm. And it was right. a very well-delineated, clear, unequivocal situation where they knew exactly what they needed to do, which is not necessarily going to be the case in a real organizational situation. It's going to be much more open-ended. There's going to be a bunch of different variables or noise coming at them from different directions about what they need to do, different people telling them different things and this and that. Like, like we all know, organization life is, is dynamic and, and can be quite complex and indeterminate. So I'm not sure, and we, we just don't know, like we said before, because this is still early days with this technology, um, what kind of impacts it's going to have in different situations. And my, my sense is that we're going to see, like we've seen before with different technologies, different types of productivity gains in different types of situations, especially with a generalized tool like ChatGPT or different generative AI systems that can be used in so many different ways. Um, but I, I do think that if organizations do want to increase their chances of seeing productivity gains, and by the way, not just productivity gains, we, we kind of skipped over this before, but one of the findings that came out of, out of the, the study that looked at ChatGPT in the essay writing um, situation mm -hmm. was that people ha had an increased satisfaction with performing the task mm -hmm. when they use ChatGPT. Mm -hmm. So it's not yeah. just productivity. It's, it's also about at least potentially making people more satisfied in the workplace, which is really important. Yeah. But if organizations yeah. want, want, want to achieve those gains, they have to have these complementary capabilities. 
So things like, you know, have a champion in the organization that, that clearly delineates what the technology is going to be used for. What are the specific use cases for which it, it, it's going to be used? How are people meant to use it? What kind of organizational restructuring might happen as a consequence of using these tools? What kind of culture do we want to have in place that might help people perhaps experiment with a new technology, explore new possibilities rather than be tied down to the old things, the old way, the old ways in which they used to do things. So I think two of the elements you just highlighted might conflict with one another. Meaning I'm with you on the experiment point. I think organ I think having a champion is good, but that not that that champion should prescribe or prescribe how it should be used to say it should be used in this way and not that way. Because I think those that's the open question is what way is it going to be effective, but maybe engendering opportunities for experimentation and then reflecting on the learnings from that experimentation to say, well, what seems to work and what doesn't in terms of how we use these tools? Sure, but I, I, I don't disagree. But I, I do think that there still needs to be some sort of a, a narrative a grand narrative that makes sense of how to use this technology within a business. Mm -hmm. And, and so we looked at an, another paper by um, Merit Enholm, I hope I'm pronoun mm -hmm. pronouncing the name right, uh, where they do talk about some of these um, cap organizational capabilities that businesses need to have to be able to use this technology effectively. And, and they talk about AI strategy. So that's kind of mm -hmm. what I mean when mm -hmm. I talk about narrative, a grand gotcha. narrative. You need to have a strategy, a direction that makes people understand why and how we're expected to use these tools. That doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to be heavily scripted. That, that I don't think that's that's very effective for such an open-ended tool. Yeah, but have a plan in place. Uh, even the plan might be too specific a concept, but a narrative. Interesting. Hmm. You, you need to have a story that people can buy into and understand what it is that they're doing and why they're using these tools. What kind of grand objectives are they trying to help with the, their, this experimentation with this new technology? Sure. So just putting it in there and letting people play with it without having any of these um, structures or processes in place, uh, it might work, but it might not work. And by the way, um, yeah, I, I anticipate that at least in some cases, the technology is going to be used in, in industries and sectors that are very heavily regulated. You know, people have talked about um, the legal industry and how AI, mm -hmm. AI, generative AI can be used there. You know, that's a pretty heavily regulated industry. You can't just do whatever you want to do and, and hope for the best, mm -hmm. which <laughs> reminds me of or, this. Or medicine. Yeah, that's another one. And I think there's good use cases for the tools in medicine, including that we know these tools are better at scanning uh, for malignancy in in images, in, in cell imagery. Um, and certainly medicine is very heav heavily regulated domain. So yeah, I think you could be quite right on that intuition. Yeah. Okay. So, so I think you have actually, I think you've actually done a good job of summarizing a lot of the managerial takeaways. And so I don't know that we need to go we don't need to go back to that unless there's clear others that you want to glean. There is one piece of this whole discussion that I, I would love to just touch on at some point, um, which is the part of the more optimistic view. I think I have tended to take a more sanguine view of the potential for these tools to enhance our work lives. And one of the things I often hear people comment, you know, you hear about technology displacement and things like that. But at least in most of the Western democracies, a lot of people have talked about how we're below replacement birth rate. We've been below replacement birth rate for much of the uh, throughout most of 
Western Europe for more than a decade in the United States for just the last couple of years. But, you know, the, the thinking is, well, you know, what are we going to do as we have this graying society, right? Society within these countries gets older and you have fewer and fewer young adults trying to support and replace the productivity of more and more older adults. Well, I got a solution for you, it would appear. Have right? with AI? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that the, if these tools are really significant productivity enhancers, it means that fewer young people could could replace more older people with the enhancement of the technology, with the support uh, and enhancement of the technology. Uh, yeah, the sex with AI is not going to turn around the birth rates for sure. And in fact, it will almost surely decimate the birth <laughs> rates. <laughs> but on that point that you just made about productivity gains, um, there was another study that I think supports the argument, which we um, we didn't talk about before. Um, this is a study by Demioli et al. from 2021 um, titled The Impact of AI on Labor Productivity. And what I don't know if you if you looked if you've looked at that one. I did. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they they sampled. They looked at patents, patents, AI based patents. Was this the one? Yeah, AI yeah. patent applications across thousands of different companies all over, from all over the world between 2016. and they found a significant relationship between application of AI patents and and productivity growth, uh, labor productivity rather. Um, so in terms of AI patent applications. Um, a doubling in the number of AI patent applications increased labor productivity by 3%, which may sound negligible, but I guess when you look at large numbers, it, it adds up to being quite significant. And Well, but also that data set ended at 2016. And I think the last seven years have seen some substantive gains in that this regard. I'd be curious to see if that data were updated through 2023. I yeah um, I guess that's a yeah. study that, that needs to be written, and and even um, applications of non AI patents um, helped productivity. So a doubling in that number led to a productivity of again almost three percent. Mm -hmm. Particularly with service firms, it needs to be added, as yeah. opposed to manufacturing, and. When we looked at when we look at manufacturing firms, um, it was particularly high tech manufacturing firms versus low tech that were able to leverage these um, labor productivity gains, and it was specifically SMEs, so small to medium enterprises, small to medium sized enterprises, yeah, with AI patent applications as opposed to large firms. Now, that was a straight econometrics analysis, and it was interesting uh, that it does suggest, uh, you know, some real knowledge stock gains as a result of the the application of artificial intelligence. But it, that does sort of reinforce my perspective that this could be a real solution for this very clear point of concern throughout, certainly, again, most advanced democracies or advanced uh, economies where birth rates have, have fallen consistently. And people worry about depopulation. That's another one of Elon's worries: depopulation rather than population growth, mm -hmm. because you have to you have to sort of replace that productivity. Well, how do you do it? Seems like a, a possible lever to me. So, uh, to to sum up the conversation, are we are we ending on a positive note? Is that what you're saying? Let's do that. Let's do that. That is good. 
Yes. <laughs> well, that's the first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, excellent. I'm happy with that. Good. Yeah, for sure. So despite our rebranding, we're going to try to keep our favorite things. Let's, let's do it. Yeah. And I think our thinking was that we would re go back, we'll start looping back to some of the categories we've done before. And since this is a podcast in our first podcast as the Management Lab, we'll go back to some of our favorite podcasts. Okay. Who's going first? Are you going first today? I think you should go first because yours is more interesting. Mine is a little more widespread, much as I love it. Okay, so my um, recommended podcast is um, Australian. It is called the Mine Field, not the mind, not the Mind Field, but the Mine Field. And it's actually it's a radio show that's also available as a podcast. Um, so if anyone's interested, you can. I'm pretty sure you can find it everywhere. Um, it's hosted by Walid Ali, who's uh, an Australian journalist and commentator, and blanking out on the other person's name scott, scott stevens. stevens scott stevens who's by the way i'm i think he's american interesting he's let them in once in a while definitely a north american accent and what they do there is they they tackle current events from an ethical perspective and both of both of them are have intriguing personalities and they're they're knowledgeable and they have a oftentimes very revealing conversations that help shed light and and rethink some of i guess the perspectives that tend to be taken for granted in mainstream media about some of the topics of the day um it's not necessarily australian specific i mean sometimes they would touch on on topics that are particularly relevant for australian politics or society but that's not necessarily the case so even people who are not from here um i'd like to define this interesting uh, I'm really excited to check it out. I have never listened to it. And it sounds like the kind of thing that would be right up my alley. So I'm definitely going to check it out. One of the interesting things to me is you noted that it's a radio show, but it's a podcast now. Um, this is like the blending of all media. One of the things that has occurred to me recently is uh, somebody was talking about how all the streaming services, the television streaming services are going to start putting in advertising. And I all I could think is, oh, so you mean television? <laughs> right? Like we're just going back. It's very McLuhan-esque, right? We're just reverting back to older things uh, that we've already seen. And same thing, like a podcast, sure. It's like radio. Uh, fortunately, you and I have not, I don't know if this is fortunate or unfortunate, <laughs> have not used any advertising yet and don't intend to integrate any advertising. But like in a lot of the podcasts I listen to and you get the every 10 minutes, the podcast for or the advertisement for fast growing trees or something like that. Um, so anyway, so what's your, um, oh, I, ju what's I your just podcast? gave them a free ad. That was, <laughs> that was bad of me. Uh, mine is sort of an OG podcaster. So uh, OG meaning original gangster, old school, um, which is Dan Carlin's hardcore history. So for anyone who's a history fan, uh, if you haven't listened to, to Dan Carlin's hardcore history, you really need to go. He'll do, you know, four hour episodes, he, he has released them much more slowly, but the catalog still exists out there. Uh, four hour episodes, uh, he might have a given series, like I think his World War One series, 
which was called Countdown to Armageddon, had each episode was probably about four hours and he did six episodes. So that's a day's worth of content. And it was it's just so rich. It's so well researched. It's still engaging. Like it's it's amazing to me how he just keeps the narrative flowing. Um, he's got a great voice for podcasting in general. Um, if you're a history fan, you you need to check it out. Uh, particularly military history. It's called hardcore history because it's all ultimately military history. Yeah, uh, but it's it's really good. I've listened to the First World War series, and in here, he's he's very good. It's he has a a real knack for kind of pulling you into the into the situation, makes you feel like you're actually there, even even though it's just words, right? There's no images; it's just a podcast. But he's really good at what he does, and it's extremely yeah, well researched. I, I so I I join the recommendation. Excellent, cool. All right, Ori. Well, that was a great discussion. Um, I think maybe we'll move off of AI uh, next time around, but I'm sure we're going coming back to it sooner or later. Sounds good. I'll talk to you soon, Sean. All right. Later. Later.